The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Saturday, June 24th, 2023. So, Mr. Rios, proceed with caution. Hey everybody, this is your host, Peter, with the 51st Digest of this second volume, covering Monday, June 19th through Friday, June 23rd, 2023. Marvel Saga Monday, Part 26. But wait a minute... There is no Marvel Saga issue 26, so what am I doing here? Well, if Marvel Saga, the official history of the Marvel Universe, was a celebration of 25 years of Marvel Comics, Marvel Publishing, Marvel Continuity, I thought it would be fun to read a similar project produced for Marvel's 50th anniversary which was held in 2011. Now, I talked last time about how there are other Marvel Saga one-shots that are, that are in a similar format to the original Marvel Saga. Not quite, but they do basically the same thing where they take a look at a character, a team, an event, and they kind of map out the history to catch you, the reader, up uh, you know, in case there is a new title coming out or a new event coming up. And there are sagas such as Moon Knight Saga, New Mutants Saga, Secret Invasion Saga. Uh, I think uh, it all began with uh, what was called the Wolverine Saga, although that was a miniseries. And, you know, it just covered whatever Marvel wanted you, the reader, to know about. Usually they were giveaway one-shots to comic retailers. So what I researched and what I found is a one-shot that was released in November of 2011 entitled History of the Marvel Universe, not to be confused with the six-issue miniseries by Mark Wade and Javier Rodriguez from 2019. So this is a one-shot uh, as the back cover states, an incredible walk down memory lane for longtime fans or the perfect primer for the uninitiated. So, casually flipping through it, uh, it's not exactly like the Marvel Saga. I mean, it does pull images from various comics and then there is narration. But it is not tech... It doesn't quite... Um, gel. It doesn't quite try to show uh, some kind of linear narrative. What it really does is it spotlights certain eras, but it doesn't even do that um, on the page. You know, the way that I broke it up as I was reading it, I could see the various eras, you know, throughout the Marvel Universe, some that are official, some that are that are like my own headcanon. Um, and eventually it gets to a point where they can't cover everything and they really just bounce from major event to major event. But it is kind of close to Marvel Saga. And since Marvel Saga, as I stated, was 25 years of history, I thought it would be interesting to look at what uh, a comic would look like, a history of the Marvel Universe, if they have to cover 50 years, you know, to see if it expands on the Marvel saga uh, in any way, to see if there's any information 
that might get updated since the Marvel saga ended in 1987 and we are talking about a comic that was produced in 2011. So your head writer coordinator is Mike O'Sullivan. The cover is by Scott Eaton, Victor Olazaba, and Chris Sotomayor featuring Spider-Man, Iron Man, Hulk, Thor, Captain America, and Wolverine. Curiously, no Fantastic Four uh, on on the cover in terms of, you know, a, a big character. So, so let's jump in. Let's jump in. Um, there's a little that I learned in some of the, you know, like the first half of this one shot, and then the second half becomes about yeah, remember this era, you know, it gave us these characters and these events. But there's some things to talk about as well. So we start pages one through five, and these are very similar to the first 12 issues of the Marvel Saga, where we start at World War II and cover all the way up through the foundation of the Avengers. More or less, you're getting one image per character, and a caption that matches that image, more or less. Uh, you got all the biggies here, Fantastic Four, Doctor Doom, Hulk, Spider-Man, Thor, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Iron Man, Doctor Strange, X-Men, Avengers, and eventually Captain America waking up in the Marvel Age. A couple of notes based on these pages. pages page 1, so this is all narrated by The Watcher, and I wanted to read the opening dialogue here. For centuries, my mission has been to watch and record humanity's history, seeing it evolve into the horribly wonderful race it has become. What? Evolve into the horribly wonderful race. Wow. Uh, and then he continues. In recent times, I have watched colorfully costumed men and women with amazing abilities emerge to protect the helpless and innocent, pitting themselves against questionable individuals who would turn their equally astonishing talents against humanity. This is the story of these individuals. This is the story of these marvels. On page four, when he talks about Dr. Strange, um, he says here, Dr. Stephen Strange continued to secretly protect the Earth as he had done for years. And also, when these new heroes gained public attention, Strange began operating more publicly. Now, that's a notion that I don't know that I got from the original Marvel saga, where it feels like they're placing Dr. Strange as being established while all these heroes were emerging in the beginning of the Marvel Age. And it makes sense if you read that very first Doctor Strange story, because it feels like he has been around for a while, so I like that. Page 5, describing the Avengers, the roster of the Avengers. The Watcher says, The, the volatile mixture of gods, monsters, playboys, and scientists caused internal clashes, but didn't prevent them from serving mankind. I like that. I like that description of all of those various heroes that made up the Avengers, especially if you consider this one-shot came out uh, several months before the Avengers movie, and that's a good, that's a good um, definition. Maybe that's even a definition that you could say is good for the Ultimates as well. Also, when, he, when they talk about Captain America, we get probably the first update beyond what the Marvel saga could even know. 
uh, where it says, unaware Bucky was recovered by Russians and forced to become a Soviet agent. And then it goes on, Captain America mourned the loss of his friend, sometimes even mistaking others for the missing Bucky. And we did talk about that in the saga, the way that certain characters looked alike, namely uh, Bucky and Rick Jones. Pages six through nine cover the second half of the Marvel saga, where we go from Daredevil to Nick Fury to Cap's kooky quartet, the Masters of Evil, Spider-Man's rogues, uh, the Inhumans, Mary Jane Watson, the Wedding of Reed and Sue, and then winding up with the Galactus trilogy, which is where the Marvel saga ended. Page 7, when they talk about Nick Fury, it says, S.H.I.E.L.D. battled terrorist organizations like HYDRA while protecting civilians from the Marvel's battles. Have we seen that? Have we seen S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of swooping in during, I don't know, the Kree Scroll War or during um, something, something in the early Marvel age in the 60s, 70s, where they're like, oh, oh no, the Hulk and the Thing are fighting again. Let's go save the day. I don't know. Also, they use the image from the cover to Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. number four by Mr. Starenko with all of his straps and all of his pouches and his gun. Dare I say, maybe it's not Rob Liefeld's fault. <laughs> Page eight for the wedding and for the Galactus trilogy, uh, the Watcher interjects in his narration and talks about how he had a hand in both of those events. Um, I think that's the last time he does that. Pages 9 through 13, now we're into late 60s, early 70s Marvel. There's a lot of Gil Kane art in this section. This is stuff that was covered in those last three pages of the Marvel saga to some degree. Not all of it, but some of it. Um, we're going Marvel Cosmic with Captain Marvel, the Kree Scroll War, Adam Warlock, but then we also dip into Marvel horror, such as Man-Thing, uh, Ghost Rider, Werewolf by Night, and Morbius. And what feels like the second generation of Marvel, characters or concepts that spun out of um, all the people that would take over for Stan Lee. So things like Defenders, Luke Cage, Howard the Duck, a character that I've never read uh, the 70s martial arts explosion with Shang-Chi, Iron Fist, White Tiger, and certain Marvel events like the birth of Franklin Richards, Captain America and Falcon teaming up, and the death of Gwen Stacy. On page 10, when they are describing Ghost Rider, they say that Johnny Blaze made a deal with the demon Zarathos to become Ghost Rider. Now, this is this is information as of 2011. I know that information changes a lot. It's like Satan and Mephisto and Zarathos. So I don't know what it is today. Pages 14 through 19. This is all the anti-heroes, giant size X-Men, Marvel creating female versions of their characters, everything up to the Dark Phoenix saga. So we get Punisher, Wolverine, Captain Britain, Alpha Flight, the Eternals, Guardians of the Galaxy, Spider-Woman, Ms. Marvel, She-Hulk, Kitty Pryde, Dazzler, and then we get events like the death of Thunderbird, 
the Korvac saga, Demon in a Bottle, and Dark Phoenix saga, as I mentioned. It really is interesting. If you've never looked up the creation of Dazzler, you really should. Because I wanted to see who created her, even though she appeared in X-Men. I thought maybe she was a Claremont Byrne character, but she's not. And then you go read about her origin, and it's quite trippy. Pages 20 through 22. Interestingly, this is covering Marvel right before I started reading, late 70s, early 80s. So these stories would echo into the comics that I did start with, but this is all the stuff that I missed. So we got like Captain America for President, Days of Future Past, Hank Pym and his mental breakdown, and then giving up his superheroics. You got the Contest of Champions, the Death of Elektra, the Death of Captain Marvel, uh, the the New Mutants forming, Hobgoblin, James Rhodes becomes Iron Man, Nomad, Better Ray Bill, Monica Rambeau as Captain Marvel. I mean, all of this stuff was more or less already in place when I started reading Marvel in 1982 and 1983. So I listed this for me as kind of like a third age of, of Marvel's. And then pages 23 through 26, here we go. This is my sweet spot. You got Secret Wars, Black Suit Spider-Man, She-Hulk with the Fantastic Four, The Thing on Battle World, Secret Wars 2, Captain America versus Red Skull, Magneto with the New Mutants, Daredevil Born Again, The Mutant Massacre, and characters like Power Pack, West Coast Avengers, X-Factor, Scourge. I mean, this is this is the Marvel that I grew up with right here. Page 23 mentions that after Secret Wars 2, the Beyonder's power returned to his pocket realm where it created a new universe that he controlled. Now, is that meant to be the actual new universe line, or is it something different? Um, Because I thought I read somewhere that the Beyonder energies is what kickstarted the new universe. If you remember that house ad, right, with the lightning bolt coming crashing down onto the earth. I don't know. I I don't quite know where all that fits in. It also states that, as of 2011 anyway, The Beyonder is revealed to be a nascent cosmic cube. Pages 27 through 29, these are events that occurred once I stopped reading comics in the late 80s, such as Captain America as Captain, and then you get John Walker, you get Archangel, the Armor Wars, Kraven's Last Hunt, the birth of Venom, Excalibur, New Warriors, and events such as Atlantis Attacks, and Acts of Vengeance and the Midnight Suns. Pages 30 through 37. Now I am back into reading Marvel, early 90s stuff, although there is a lot of stuff here that I missed. But the X-Books were were reigning supreme. Uh, No doubt a lot of this would eventually be competition with Image. So you got the X-Men Mutant Genesis with Jim Lee, X-Force. You got the Infinity Trilogy, Operation Galactic Storm, which I loved. Executioner's Song, The Legacy Virus, Fatal Attractions, which I'm covering on Timeline Tuesday, Blood Ties, Age of Apocalypse, again, which I loved, characters like War Machine, Marvel UK, Carnage, Generation X, you got the Clone Saga, which I've never read, leading us all the way up to the mid-90s, and Onslaught, Heroes Reborn, all of this stuff that I am in the middle of reading. 
pages 38 through 40, we have, I guess you could say, sort of like Marvel's Renaissance. You got that mid-90s to early 2000s energy, which was a really great time to read Marvel. Thunderbolts, Heroes Return, Avengers Forever, X-Men The Twelve, which was an event that I liked. Maximum Security, eh, that didn't go over so well. Uh, Avengers Disassembled. Uh, For some reason, they completely skip over Marvel Knights. I don't know how or why. Um, Especially because in the back, uh, where they're trying to reference where all these stories are coming from, they're listing trade paperbacks so that, you know, if you want to read about Age of Apocalypse, this is the trade paperback you need to read. So how do you skip over all of Marvel Knights? That's crazy. And then we rounded out pages 41 through 48, 2000s Marvel, where they were completely riding high. This is totally the podcast era. So you have things like Secret War, Bendis' New Avengers, The Sentry, House of M, Annihilation, Civil War, The Death of Captain America, Winter Soldier, The Illuminati Concept, Planet Hulk and World War Hulk, Messiah Complex, Secret Invasion, which is on Disney Plus right now, Utopia, The Cancerverse, Siege, Red Hulk, Second Coming, Brand New Day, Hickman's Fantastic Four, Fear Itself, and it ends with Spider Island. So again, th- this is where, you know, you can see they're just bouncing from event to event to event. It's like it's like a hundred Dark Phoenix sagas, <laughs> you know, every every six months. That's that's just the way comics writing, you know, uh, took off in the 2000s. But um, as a whole, this was a fun one-shot. As I said, it's not as in-depth as the Marvel saga, but I wanted to see what they would cover, especially in the next 25 years. Uh, so this was good. This was a, a nice midway point between Marvel Saga and between History of the Marvel Universe by Wade and Rodriguez, which is updating everything up to, well, I guess 2019 and 2020. So there you go. That is your Marvel Saga Monday. I do have some some other follow-ups. I talked about this before. Not only those one-shots that I talked about, but there are things that questions, questions and untold tales that came up while I was reading Marvel Saga. So if I ever get back to this concept, it won't be a regular feature, but I may go, hey, remember that question that came up about Subterranea in Marvel? Well, I went and read the Subterranean Wars, you know, like I might do something like that later sporadically, uh, you know, on a whim. So there you go. That is your Marvel Saga Monday, the final chapter. Timeline Trivia Tuesday Part 2 for June 2023, taking a look back 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and 60 years ago, and then giving you a trivia question per category. We start 40 years ago, June of 1983. DC is right in my wheelhouse with All-Star Squadron 25, the first appearance of the all-new mysterious Infinity Inc., created by Roy Thomas, Jerry Ordway, and Mike Macklin, featuring the characters of Jade, Northwind, Nuklon, Obsidian, and Silver Scarab. Also, Fury and Brainwave Jr., who had been seen before, 
Fury is Lyda Trevor. We saw her way back in Wonder Woman 300. And Brainwave Jr. first appeared in All-Star Squadron 24. And then this team would round out this storyline all the way up to annual number one. And eventually they'll get their own series starting in December of 1983 uh, as part of DC's Baxter line. Also in June of 1983, 40 years ago, one of my favorite miniseries, uh, a story that is completely in my comic DNA, Sword of the Atom, number one of four by Gil Kane, Jan Stranad, and company. It's pretty much what shaped me into being a Gil Kane fan. It's got such an odd setting for Ray Palmer. And if anything, I think it helped my young brain accept the fact that sometimes these characters get put into very weird situations or they get changed drastically. You know, we're leading up to the crisis. We got this weird, you know, Adam in South America story. And yet it works. It totally works. And it evolves the Adam story to a degree. And I just feel like, yeah, this is the kind of stuff that eventually would set me up to going, oh, by the way, not only are we going to change small things, but we're going to change big things as well. From first, we have American Flag number one, created by Howard Chaikin, ran for 50 issues, uh, tells the story of Ranger Reuben Flag as he navigates a 2031 America in a world ravaged by nuclear conflict, environmental disasters, and nationalism that had driven the United States, States government and the corporations that owned it to the relative safety of the planet Mars. And then there's a whole bunch of political stuff and other characters like Raul, the smartest talking cat alive. I have never read any American flag, and that's scandalous. I really, I really should. New Mutants 8 gave us the first appearance of the girl who would become Magma. And then your question comes from June of 1983, 40 years ago, from New Teen Titans Annual Number 2, featuring the first appearance of the vigilante so adrian chase was a character a supporting character within the new teen titans universe he first appeared in new teen titans 23 this is all by wolfman and perez and company and uh the this annual and the story that led up to it uh sets up the vigilante and sets up the vigilante getting his own series starting in august of 1983 also in the baxter format so that's um, the Omega Men, Infinity Inc., and Vigilante, all introduced in newsstand titles and then spun off into Baxter titles, which is interesting. So your question, what other New Teen Titans villain that also has a connection with a Teen Titan had her first appearance in this annual? Let's go 50 years ago, June of 1973. Plop number one would run for 24 issues, a humor and horror anthology series with creators such as Sergio Aragonis, Bernie Wrightston, Steve Skeets, Al Alcala, Sheldon Mayer, and others. Batman 251 gave us the Joker's five-way revenge, bringing back the murderous Joker and many of Batman's rogues, this is by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. 
Ghost Rider number one from Marvel. The character graduates into his own series after appearing in another title. This would run for 81 issues. I didn't realize that this issue is the first appearance of Damon Hellstrom, the son of Satan. Jungle Action number six, also from Marvel. Uh, 50 years ago, we got the first appearance of Killmonger by Don McGregor and Rich Buckler and Klaus Jansen, the character that would show up eventually in the Black Panther movie. June of 1973 gave us Amazing Spider-Man 124. J. Jonah Jameson's son becomes the Man-Wolf. And then we have JLA 107, Crisis on Earth X by Len Wein, Dick Dillon, and Dick Giordano, featuring the first appearance of the Freedom Fighters, the team, not the members. So all the characters within the Freedom Fighters originally showed up in Quality Comics titles. DC acquired them, and then they show up here in this issue under a new team, under a new team name, I should say, or, you know, they, they weren't a team before. It's also the first appearance of Earth-X, where the Nazis won World War II. And then eventually the Freedom Fighters would get their own short-lived series in the 70s. So your question comes from this issue. Name the six members that appeared in this issue as the Freedom Fighters. And then finally, let's go back 60 years ago, June of 1963. Amazing Spider-Man number four, Stan Lee, Steve, Steve Ditko, the first appearance of Sandman, and the first appearance of Betty Brant. Fantastic Four 18 gave us the first appearance of the Super Scroll. Justice League of America 21 was the very first team-up of the JLA-JSA in that title, Crisis on Earth 1, kicking off an annual tradition of crossing over those two teams. Flash 138 gave us the first appearance of Dexter Miles, the curator of the Flash Museum. And Richie Rich, Dollars and Cents number one, one of the many Richie Rich titles that was out at the time 60 years ago. And this would run all the way up to issue 109 in 1982. Your question for 60 years ago, June of 1963, comes from Tales of Suspense 45 featuring Iron Man. It is the first appearance of Happy Hogan and also the first appearance of Pepper Potts. Your question, what Iron Man villain also had his first appearance in this issue? Let's go to your answers. We have from 40 years ago, New Teen Titans annual number two, first appearance of Vigilante and also the first appearance of Cheshire. From 50 years ago, June of 1973, the six members of the Freedom Fighters, they are Black Condor, Doll Man, Human Bomb, Phantom Lady, Ray, and Uncle Sam. And 60 years ago, Tales of Suspense 45, you got Happy Hogan, you got Pepper Potts, and you have Iron Man versus the first appearance of Jack Frost. All right, let me know how you did for this month's Timeline Trivia Tuesday. If you had the chance, if you had the hard choice to make, would you erase me from existence? 
I'll keep that in mind. New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday for the week of June 21st. Here are your recommendations. Starting with Mercury Comics, the Atomica Omnibus hardcover for $50 by Andrew Dabb and Sal Abenanti and Alex Ross. This is finally being put out, um, I believe, through comic shops. So you can look, uh, you know, you can see if they're actually in your comic store. If you're someone that loved Uncle Sal on all all the CGS appearances, here's a way to give back. Uh, it's collecting the 12-issue story with some new artwork as well as covers and pinups um, by a whole slew of creators that you'll love. So definitely go and support Sal and Atomica. From Image Comics, Junkyard Joe Trade Paperback Volume 1, collecting the first six issues, $14.99 by Jeff Johns, Gary Frank, Brad Anderson, and company. Feels to me like this is like... Um, uh, the DC character uh, G.I. Robot, I guess it is. Maybe this is like a holdover story that John's morphed into this kind of story. I don't know. I, I, I could com- be completely wrong on that. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm looking forward to this story. From Z2 Comics, Judas Priest, Screaming for Vengeance, trade paperback, $24.99, by Rance Hosley, a name I haven't heard in a while, Neil Clyde, Christopher Mitten, uh, apparently this is a story based around, uh, I don't know, the Judas Priest Eagle thing or, uh, one of the albums. I don't know. I tried to do some research. I did. All I get is the blurb. 500 years from now, a ring of cities will orbit high above the surface of a dead world, controlled by a ruling elite that maintains power through manipulation and brutality. When an engineer inadvertently threatens the status quo with his vital scientific discovery, a bloodstone, he is betrayed by those he trusted and cast out to the broken planet below. In the wreckage and desolation of a broken world where every day is a battle for survival, he must choose between accepting his new life in exile or screaming for vengeance. I certainly remember those album covers. Um, My stepdad was someone who grew up in the 70s he went to so many concerts, like all of those greats, you know, he was there. And I just remember those album covers were trippy and and wild. Some of them are scary. So, all right, from Hero Tomorrow Comics, we have the Tap Dance Killer hardcover by Ted Sakura, Donnie Hadawadiaja, by, uh, for $29.99, telling the story of the Tap Dance Killer, known as Nikki St. Clair, and how... She's out on the streets dealing damage with a theatrical flair that leaves them quite literally slain in the aisles. Also, the origin of the boxer-turned-murderous-clown assassin, Punchline. From Marvel, we have Incredible Hulk number 1, Phil- Philip Kennedy Johnson and Nick Klein. The Age of Monsters has begun, $4.99. Uh, as an enraged Hulk tries to take control of Banner's body permanently, a mysterious immortal turns every monster in the Marvel Universe against Banner. In order to attempt to free their creator, the primordial Mother of Horrors, with the help of an unlikely new friend, Banner and Hulk must try to stop the world from getting plunged into darkness in this terrifying new series. Let's see how this Hulk series holds up compared to the previous one, 
um, that came out right after the Al Ewing run. And that previous one, not so good. And then, like you heard in the bumper, Ultimate Invasion 1 of 4, Jonathan Hickman, Brian Hitch, the transformation of the Marvel Universe begins, $8.99. Really looking forward to reading this. And it has even made me go back and uh, I am starting to read the Ultimate Universe. I read the first six or seven issues of Ultimate Spider-Man, basically whatever that first trade is, and I read one issue of Ultimate X-Men so far, and I will continue to do so. And then from DC Comics, short and sweet, Wonder Woman 800, $5.99, the final issue of that run, also setting up the Tom King, Danielle Samper uh, run that will begin in September, featuring the first appearance of Wonder Woman's daughter, Trinity. Looking forward to that issue. There you go, your recommendations for the week of June 21st. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Spanning from the first issue of Who's Who in 1985 all the way through the Loose Leaf edition. Including all the updates, the spinoffs, custom Who's Who pages for forgotten characters, and tons of in-depth character spotlights. Entries span from the golden age of DC. And into the extreme 1990s. Covering characters such as Superman by Kurt Swan and John Byrne. The Justice League by Kevin McGuire. Batman by Dick Giordano. The New Titans by Tom Grummet. Wonder Woman by George Perez. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. The Flash by Carmine Infantino. Lobo by Simon Bisley. The All-Star Squadron by Jerry Ordway. Firestorm by Al Milgram. Aquaman by Chuck Patton. So many entries talking about Ian Carcool. The Forever People again and again and again. And hundreds and hundreds of other characters found in Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available wherever you find podcasts and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. A Thought for Thursday, a Summer and the Stars edition. Confused about the cosmos? Can't tell a planet from a star? Then give us just five minutes, and we'll show you what they are. Jack Horkheimer, Stargazer, tells you all about the night sky and the biggest show of all, the universe. And now, this week's episode. The stars of early summer nights welcome in the new season and say farewell to the old. Greetings, greetings, fellow stargazers. Even though this week is the first week of summer for the Northern Hemisphere, we can still see many of the bright stars of late spring. However, they won't be around long, because the brightest stars of summer are rising and announcing that they will soon take over the heavens. Let me show you. Okay, we've got our skies set up for this week and next. Just after dark, which will be between 10 and 11 p.m., for many of you, facing north, where you will see the Little Dipper at its very highest above the North Star. In fact, the North Star is the star at the end of the handle of the Little Dipper. Now, the Little Dipper is not nearly as large or bright as the Big Dipper, which is directly to its left in the northwest. Four stars mark its cup, and three stars mark its handle. 
And once you've found it, you can shoot an arrow through its handle to find the third brightest star in the sky, Arcturus, which is the major star of Bootes the Herdsman. Although the entire constellation looks something like a kite. You can extend that arrow from Arcturus over to the brightest star of Virgo, which is Spica. Remember, arc to Arcturus, then speed on to Spica. Now, we can tell from the stars alone that spring is almost over, because spring's most famous constellation is just above the western horizon. A sickle-shaped pattern, or backward question mark of stars, marks the front part of Leo the lion, and a triangle of stars marks his rear. And he will soon disappear below the horizon as summer stars take over evening skies. Next, if you turn 180 degrees around and face east, you will see the three incredibly bright stars which mark the points of a very large triangle, the brightest of which is Vega, the second brightest, Altair, and the third, Deneb, the three stars which mark the points of the great summer triangle. And every summer in mid-June, just after it gets good and dark out, we always see this triangle of three celestial dazzlers rising above the eastern horizon. Of course, my personal favorite stars of summer are always somewhere in the southeast, south, or southwest. So just look south, and there you'll see a giant fishhook-shaped pattern of stars, which is none other than summer's infamous Scorpius the Scorpion, which is trailed by the teapot-shaped portion of stars, which make a part of the constellation Sagittarius, the Centaur. So there you have it, bright summer stars announcing their arrival and the stars of spring bidding us farewell. Keep looking up. I'm going to end this week's digest with a movie review of The Flash. I wanted to do this on a Monday segment, but I had a Monday segment for this week and next week's uh, last digest of the second volume is going to be differently composed. So I thought, you know what, let's just squeeze it here at the end, especially if you haven't seen The Flash. This way you can skip this segment and you'll be done with this um, episode, this episode for uh, this week's Digest. So, The Flash. The Flash. <laughs> I'm going to warn you right now. Um, first of all, if you haven't seen it, obviously I might say some things that you may not want to hear, but I don't think my thoughts are any different from 
the reviews that I've been seeing. Um, you know, if I had to give a word for this movie, for me, it would be disappointing, you know? So I'm going to talk a little bit about this movie. Really what I'm going to do is just read the, uh, the little outline of notes that I took as I was thinking about this movie. You know, I, I sometimes take notes on, um, in my notes app on my phone and they are very fragmented. And then I, you know, forward them over onto my laptop and I expand on them a little bit, or I'm able to riff on them a little bit. But I think, I don't think I want to go too in depth because, just because, you know, I just want to read these notes and maybe I'll find a way to talk uh, more in depth later somewhere else. But, um, you know, this is really, this is really all I had to think about this movie. So let's just start. All right. Uh, there are two movies here, just like Justice League versus Zack Snyder's Justice League. I feel like I'm watching even more than two movies. I wonder what this movie would have been like uh, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. It feels like too many cooks in the kitchen. And sometimes there are moments that I'm like, oh, there's a movie I think I would like. And then there are a lot of moments where I'm like, no, I don't want to see this movie at all. Uh, Younger Barry's Antics. Not fun. Uh, Andy Muschietti directed it, but he also directed It and Mama. And you want to say, what happened? I love the first It. I, I liked Mama, you know. Story by Christina Hudson, who did Birds of Prey, which doesn't, you know, that's not a plus in my book. Now, granted, this story was has been worked on for so long, and who knows where the inspiration for this particular story came from. You know, is it a mishmash of previous scripts and previous write-ups? Is it completely from a, an entirely new cloth? I mean, there was even talk of um, Ezra Miller and Grant Morrison got together to hash out a story. You know, how much of that is in this? I don't know. The visual effects. I've read what the director said. I've read what Kevin Smith tried to defend. No, the visual effects are just bad. They're bad. Um, I said this already. There are moments to like, but a lot of moments that are confusing in their choices. The multiverse angle. Boy, do movies, they just don't seem to get the multiverse angle correctly. I mean, you know, Spider-Man No Way Home, where you have three Spider-Man working together. I mean, that was the point. Okay. Okay. Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, while we saw other universes, we only played in one version, right? And that's the same thing that's happening here. We get hints that there's a larger multiverse, but you only mess around in one of them. So it's not really a multiverse movie. It's It's more of like a singular alternate universe movie. Sasha Cayley as Supergirl is pretty great. I think she would be a good fit for Tom King's Supergirl story. I don't understand why they didn't connect her ship to the ship that they found in Man of Steel. I know it's another universe, but when you think about Man of Steel, 
when Lois Lane comes across that ship, or even when Kal-El comes across the ship, apparently one of the pods or one of the units looked like it was already opened, like maybe there might be a Kryptonian already on Earth. So if they're already messing around with the Man of Steel universe in the Flash, why didn't they just go back to that? There is barely any Iris stuff worth talking about, you know, Iris and, and Barry. I mean, it's there, but I think I got more emotionality out of uh, the small sequence in Zack Snyder's Justice League than I did in all of this movie. It does not give me any hope for the new DC movie universe. None at all. Knowing that James Gunn had his hand on some of the story, definitely the ending, just doesn't... I I, I don't care. I just... I really just don't care. Um, I don't know if he had anything to do with the opening sequence with the rescuing of the babies, but that feels very James Gunn-like. And there was other stuff that I was like, that just feels like James Gunn humor, and I'm not here for it. That That's what I mean about, like, when you watched Justice League, Joss Whedon's version, you could feel where the interruptions were, where the tone just changed completely. And, um, like I said, I am, I'm excited to see Blue Beetle, but anything that is in that new slate, nah, I, I, I'm gonna watch it, but I, I'm just really... I'm, I'm sort of out. Um, is this the worst movie? No. I know about all the multiple endings, whatever. Um, we've seen a lot of these beats in the Flash TV show. That's why it just didn't feel innovative here. I think we needed something different. Again, the one scene in Zack Snyder's Justice League where Barry resets the time was infinitely more amazing than most of the stuff in this movie. Uh, I'll say a little thing about the cameos. They did not bother me. They didn't bother me at all. You know, I, I see people getting really up in arms about the cameos, and I think, wait a minute, you know, how many times do we as fans gush when we hear the John Williams Superman theme? We've been keeping Christopher Reeve alive for way, way, way too long, you know? We are living in trying to bring back everything that, that you know, we want to capture from our childhood. To, to say that for some reason what they did here is, is some form of, like, sacrilege, I, I feel is a little hypocritical because um, we've been mining that stuff for so, 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 so long. So I, I had no problems with any of that. People say the movie is fun. That's not a compliment to me, you know? When someone says a movie's fun or something's fun, it's not a compliment, you know? In theater, when we go see a show and someone in the show comes up to us afterwards and said, hey, what'd you think? Did you like it? And my first initial reaction is to say, oh, it was fun. That's not a compliment. That's me trying not to hurt someone's feelings. So I've seen a lot of people say that the movie was fun for them. Great. I'm glad it's fun. That's not... <laughs> that doesn't mean anything to me. Um, it's interesting that this movie comes out almost 10 years to the day that Man of Steel opened up in 2013. For all of the experimentation, for all of the flaws, for all of the zigs and zags 
for the good movies, for the not so good movies, I'm I'm fine with what I got in the last 10 years. You know, I, I think it always made sense to me that you didn't need to build up the DC universe the way you did the Marvel universe because people know Superman, people know Batman, and they did exactly what Marvel did. They introduced their newer, quote-unquote, newer characters within the movies and then spun them off into their own movies. Now, the one, you know, they, they introduced Wonder Woman and then she got her own movie before Justice League. Flash and Cyborg, if you watch the Justice League movie, the Zack Snyder version, they are very integral to that story and it would have made sense to then make movies after Justice League, which is what they wanted to do. You know, we got Aquaman, we should have got should have gotten Flash, we should have gotten Cyborg. The the main problem was that they didn't um expand their creative teams. You know, they wanted to they let Zack Snyder have it all, which I'm not I again, I don't have a problem with that. But he's only one man. He could only do so much. And then he had tragedy in his life and it all kind of went downhill from there. So had they put these things in development, had they tried to use a lot of these movies as branching off points, it could have been um, a much tighter universe. And, you know, it just wasn't that way. So um, Man of Steel to Batman versus Superman to Justice League, well, to Suicide Squad, Wonder Woman, and then Justice League, you know, I don't know. I was okay with that. Um, it probably would have been better had this movie come out when it was supposed to. Uh, I just think it's it's a bad echo of uh, missed opportunities. And um, yeah, you know, I guess I guess we go from here. So that's really it. And again, there's no way you can claim, oh, Peter, you just don't like DC right? Because, <laughs> hello. And there's no way you can claim, oh, you just don't like this universe of movies. I, you know, I just went through that I did. This movie is, it's just not a well-made movie. It's its not. I mean, don't talk subjectively, talk objectively. If you can't see this movie for the, the crazy quilt nature of it, then I don't know. I guess I can't ever trust your opinions because it's, you can have fun with it. You can say you enjoyed it. It is not a well-made movie. It just isn't. And that's very, very disappointing. I didn't even talk about um, Michael Keaton as Batman because ultimately it didn't, you know, you knew it was coming and it was what it was. And I was like, by that point, I was done with the movie. I really was, you know. So I, I think the most, like I said, the most exciting thing was seeing Supergirl, and seeing that as a high point, that was that was fun. Um, but yeah, the rest of it, eh. All right. <laughs> Email me, peter at thedailyrios.com. Go to the website, The Daily Rios. Go to The Daily Rios Instagram. Follow me on Twitter. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. Send me some book club recommendations. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 623 for Saturday, June 24th, 2023. Talk to you soon. Gene, uh, let me introduce you to, to Dazzler. Who's that? The inevitable girlfriend? <laughs>